Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 1. There's a, uh, there's a movie, it's quite old now, called 51st Dates, uh, where Adam Sandler is dating Drew Barrymore, and Drew Barrymore's character has had an accident, and so every day that she wakes up, she's total memory loss, and they have to reintroduce her to all the most important people in her life, and whenever she gets reintroduced to Adam Sandler, he's introduced as her boyfriend, he says, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not better looking. And I always think of that scene whenever my giant face has to be put up there uh, for you guys, and it's going to be the next several weeks. So sorry I'm not better looking, all right? But um, we're gonna, we hope that this video series will help you be able to process these uh, changes that we announced last week and, uh, and, and even get excited about it and find your place in them. And while we're in the, while we're in the mode of talking about dates and times, please uh, make note of October 24th. It's going to be a Monday evening at 630 um, that will be our annual uh, members meeting. If you're a member, we'd love to have you there that night. We're going to go over our budget. We're going to talk about uh, what the Lord has done in the year uh, past and what we hope he's going to do in the year coming up. It's always a beneficial time. And so that'll be uh, Monday night. We've got to get that in before November um, and all the Sunday nights are, have already been claimed. And so we're going to do Monday night on October 24th. And so Please uh, make note of that, and if you're a member, we'd love to have you here that night. If you're not a member, you're welcome to come check it out, um, but if you're a member, we'd really love to have you. Uh, we're grateful you're here today. We're grateful for everybody to join us online and ask that you would uh, uh, join me in a word of prayer as we launch out in the sermon, so let's pray. God, we are thankful uh, for each and every person who's here. We're grateful for what you did to, uh, to allow them to be here this morning, uh, that they have set aside this time uh, to take part in this, and we pray that you'll just continue on what you've already been building, what you've already been doing uh, through the fellowship, through groups that met this morning, through your worship, um, through everything, everything that's happening. God, you, um, you have center stage this morning, and so uh, through this time in which we look at your word and the baptism to follow, um, God, would you just get the glory from all of it? Uh, would you use it to draw people to yourself? Uh, would you use it to uh, transform us into the image of Jesus Christ? And um, and we give you all the praise, and we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, people are always giving recommendations, right? They're always trying to suggest new things for us to go and places to eat and things to watch. But have you ever, have you ever heard them add like a line of hyperbole to it? Like someone will tell you, you've got to try this restaurant. You've got to watch this movie. And then they say something like this. There's just nothing else like it. Well, there's a handful of times in my life where that recommendation has fallen woefully short, Right? On their suggestion, I, I tried out what they sold me on, and it was rarely negative, but nothing else like it. I wouldn't exactly call it that, right? And this has developed in me a bit of skepticism. And so now, uh, whenever somebody tells me, you've got you to watch this, you've got to go here, there's just nothing else like it, my reaction is like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's good, but, but I don't think it would raise to that level. But even after that development of skepticism, there's been a couple times that that recommendation has actually been accurate, that I've went somewhere or had an experience or done something, and I was like, wow, this, they were right. There really was, this is unique. There's nothing else like this. And what eroded my skepticism enough to try it out was the persistence of the person making the recommendation. They would see and they'd scoff at me, oh, sure, yeah, don't believe, but still, you have to try it. You have to try it. You have to believe me. Just give this a shot. You'll see, and you'll come back and tell me I was right. And the more persistent they were, the more consistent they were, the more curious I became. And I realized, wait a minute, this, this isn't just a single moment of hyperbole. This isn't a one-time exaggeration. They're actually serious about this. They believe what they're saying. 
We're in the early stages of our study in the book of Mark, and so far in chapter one, there's, there's a very similar strategy that's been deployed, right, where Mark, all throughout the first chapter, he keeps hitting the same theme for us again and again and again. He's, so far, he's told us of, of different events and characters and prophecies and moments, but they've all been hammering the same overriding theme. And it's what we sang about already this morning, is that there's no one else like Jesus, he declares it outright in the very first verse of his book when he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he gives him this title, the Son of God. There's only one who has that title. Then he tells us of prophets that foretold of Jesus' greatness. Then he tells us of John the Baptist, whose sole message was that of Jesus' greatness. All right, then he records for us Jesus' baptism, which the other two persons of the Trinity show up and the Spirit, God the Spirit, descends on Jesus like a dove and God the Father speaks and says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Right, then we read of the temptation where Jesus endures everything the kingdom of darkness throws at him and when every other man has fallen before him, he overcomes and wins. And then last week, we looked at the passage where he walks around proclaiming the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here, and it's different than you think, and it's coming through me. And he commands disciples to leave everything they know, everything they've built for, everything they've prepared for, everything they've trusted in a single instant, and they actually do. Story after story, account after account, where Mark is trying to tell us there's never been anything like this before, and there's never been anyone like Jesus before. You see, to ever experience eternal life, right, to, to be reconciled to God, we have to be drawn to him first. And part of that process is, is a revealing to us of two incredibly important realities. Number one, who God is and what he's like. And number two, who we are, especially in comparison to God. And so Mark's not saying there's, there's no one else like Jesus once and moving on. He's pounding it into our heads over and over again because this is the truth that we need to know. Whether you realize it or not, you need to know this truth. Because for every problem that you're facing, for every trial that you'll ever endure, for all your worries for your children and grandchildren, for all your fears about the future, for every confusion you face and disruption you go through, for all the uncertainty and grief in this life, and in the face of all of our impending death and the reality that we will stand before God, it's vitally important that in all that we know, there's no one like Jesus Christ. Because in knowing that, you start to recognize that he has answers for every single one of those things. And in today's passage, we're going to read, we're going to see this important truth become apparent for a large group of people all at the same time. And, and the hope and prayer is that it will become apparent to us again once more that there really is no one like Jesus. So I'm going to invite Lisa Telly up to read. She's going to read for us Mark chapter 1. We're going to read verses 21 uh, through 28. If you, if you uh, have the black Bibles in front of you, it's going to be page 887. And if you could, if you're physically capable, please stand with Lisa for the reading of God's Word this morning. Good morning. They went to Capernaum and, at Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. 
The people were all so amazed that they were asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Thank you. You guys have a seat. Keep your Bibles open there to Mark uh, chapter 1. As always, any supporting passages, we'll throw in the screens for you. And uh, I've told you the theme of today is, is the idea that there's no one else like Jesus, but we're going to do a little bonus, just a little bonus mini-sermon to start here, okay? Uh, that has nothing to do with that theme, okay? In verse 21, uh, Jesus enters, the Comper- enters Capernaum and he goes, right away he goes in the synagogue. And again, this is not the main point today, but, but given what we're going through as a church, we're going to have a little bonus part that's too neat not to share. Because in the Old Testament, right, we read about a, a time in Israel's history called the exile, in which the nation of the kingdom of Babylon invaded Israel and pretty much just de- demolished it. Right? They conquered all of it. Uh, they left it in ruins. And, and those who survived, they carried off to live in Babylon. And that's, that's why they were in exile. They were living as foreigners in a strange land. And the Bible says that this came about as a result of God's judgment on their unfaithfulness. But something developed during that time that actually plays into today's passage. Right? Now, Israel's worship of the Lord had up to then always revolved around the temple. Right? The temple was where the presence of the Lord was. The temple is where sacrifices were made and where worship happened and where priests served. But these exiles were left with this question. Right? How do we worship God when our temple is destroyed and we are completely removed from our country? And so the remnant of exiles who remained faithful to God faced an entirely different reality in which they were to worship. And they didn't know how to work it out. And what they did, what the need created, was an expanded system of synagogues. They came with this rule that whenever there were, whenever there were 10 Jewish men above the age of 12, a synagogue could be formed. And it was not a place of sacrifice, but it was a place where people would gather on the Sabbath and the scriptures would be read and people would pray and people would worship and one of the customs that formed from, these, uh, from this scattering of synagogues was, was an open invitation for any visiting or traveling rabbis to come in and teach. Now, you have to remember, none of this was set up with the New Testament in mind. None of this was set up with Jesus in mind. None of it was set up with the gospel in mind. It was all due to a change in their reality right, of how and when they could worship. And yet we see in the New Testament how crucial this is to the spreading of the gospel. Mark 1, chapter 21, Jesus enters the synagogue. Why? Because he's a traveling rabbi. He had an open invitation to. He can go right in and teach. He's going to do that all throughout the book of of Mark. In Acts, we see Paul taking advantage of this in every single city he enters. He walks into the synagogue and starts teaching. Now, did those Jewish leaders at the time of the exile know they were creating a system that was going to be crucial to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not at all. But God did. And he was right there in the midst of the change. He was right there in the midst of the uncertainty. He was right there in the need, and he was at work. He was hundreds of years ahead of them. And I, like I said, that's bonus free of charge today, all right? Back to the main point of the passage. Remember, Mark is establishing the exclusivity of Jesus. He's telling us that there's no one else like him. And in this passage that Lisa read for us, he, there's three things that he gives testimony to. And the first is just a testimony of Jesus' identity, now, again, this is not new for Mark chapter 1. He starts in verse 1 with his own declaration, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then we have the prophet's words and John the Baptist's words and, and even the other members of the Trinity confirming this. But there's a really interesting difference in our passage today, isn't there? Who accurately and rightly proclaims Jesus' identity in this passage? It's a demon. 
Your translation might say an unclean or impure spirit. This is a person who is possessed by an agent of the kingdom of darkness. Now, I don't have time to, today to walk you through the entire background of opposing kingdoms, right? My advice to you is, is in your group, the group discussions this week, ask your group leader some questions. And if you need some help, more help, ask to meet with one of your pastors or elders. But what's most important is this, is there are two kingdoms at war. And these are not earthly kingdoms. They are spiritual, eternal kingdoms. And the kingdom of God, which Jesus announces in verse 15 of chapter 1, the kingdom of God is present and is felt and is realized wherever and whenever someone submits to and follows God's good and gracious rule and design. And the kingdom of darkness opposes the kingdom of God and advances against everything that God has designed and everything that God values. And before God created man, there was created beings in the heavenly realms. The term we would use are angels. And there was a rebellion as one angel wanted to have God's place. He wanted to have the rule and reign and worship that belongs to God alone. And so he tried to overthrow God. Not a great idea. He lost, unsurprisingly, and was cast out of heaven, he and his followers. Revelation 12 mentions how he has angels with him. And these two kingdoms have been at war ever since. And wherever God's kingdom advances, the kingdom of darkness also tries to ruin anything that God loves and anything that God values and anything that God creates. And just really quickly, if you, if you have a notion to scoff at this this morning, and you're looking at me like I'm, like I'm presenting to you some Marvel story, Lord of the Rings narrative, then all I would say to you is this. Surely you've recognized the tension, haven't you? The tension that exists both in you and in this world. That voice inside you telling you to do the right thing and the other voice telling you to do the wrong thing. You see human beings come together in amazing, immense harmony and do great things. Karen and I watched a movie this week about the, the, the Thai soccer team, those 13 boys that got trapped in a cave uh, when the monsoon rain came in, and 500, more than 500 volunteers from 50 different countries came together and pitched in to free those boys. It's amazing what human beings can do when they work in harmony and together. And then you turn around and watch us tear each other apart at the seams. It's not hard to see both kingdoms, isn't it? If you just open your eyes, you can see these kingdoms at war. And because we live under the curse of sin, it looks like the kingdom of darkness is winning. But the weird part about this war is this, is that both sides already know who's going to win. And you know, you can know someone's against you when this is true. They know they're going down and they want to take as many with them as they can. And that is the posture of the kingdom of darkness. They know they're going down and they want to take as many people with them as they can. And if you're in battle, there are few people that you know more than your enemy. A few people that you study and, and, and bone up on more than your enemy. And so when Jesus Christ entered this synagogue and began teaching with authority, the unclean spirit immediately recognized who was there. And he asked the question in verse 24, are you here to destroy us? He knows it's coming. Right? And then he makes a statement, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus' response is quick. He says, be silent. Right? That, 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 the Greek word literally means to be Muslim. It means shut your mouth. And then Jesus frees, immediately frees this man of his spiritual oppression, casts out the unclean spirit because Jesus is the Holy One of God. And he will absolutely destroy the entire kingdom of darkness. They know it. And he's showcasing that and foreshadowing that by silencing and casting out the spirit. And here in chapter 1, Mark is setting the stage for a battle that's going to rage throughout Mark and the rest of time. And, and, and what he's telling you is that every time Jesus wins. 
Right? First is in temptation. Jesus overcomes every temptation that, King, that Satan throws at him in the wilderness, and he wins. Then in his very first interaction with, with the demon, he showcases his identity, and, and, and he speaks and casts this demon out because he really is the Holy One of God and therefore their greatest threat. He's going to keep winning. It's a testimony of his identity, and it comes in a weird place, but it's accurate. Then there's a testimony of Jesus' power. This one doesn't need to be dragged out that much, but it was, it was not uncommon in that day to come across someone that was understood to be possessed by a demon. That's something that everybody in that synagogue would have already seen. It makes you wonder how present it is today, and we just diagnose it as something else. Most people in the synagogue had seen this before. They'd encountered this, but they'd never seen this response. Because Jesus Christ isn't afraid. He doesn't back down. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't fight. He doesn't confront. He doesn't engage in some lengthy physical battle. He just speaks. Be quiet and come out. And even the demons, even the representatives and agents of the kingdom of darkness stand no chance against the utterance of his command. And I want you to think about how marvelous that is. They have not surrendered to him. They're not followers of his. There's nothing in them that would willingly obey him. They are his enemies. And yet when he tells them to do something, he has the power to compel them to do it. And there's nothing they can do about it. Which is why verse 27 makes all the sense in the world. The crowd watches this and it says, they were all amazed. And so they began to ask each other, what is this? Now, this is great foreshadowing of what is to come at the end. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. Then comes the end when he, this is Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the Bible tells us that, that, that Jesus, the resurrected reigning Jesus, is sitting on the throne by the Father, and he's bringing all of his enemies under his feet. He's abolishing all other rule and all other authority and all other power other than his, and he's destroying any that will oppose him. And at the end, when he does it, there's going to be nothing they can do about it. Now, practical application for you to this is that whenever the enemy tries to convince you that you're not forgiven tries to get you to doubt your salvation by reminding you of your past, there's a couple really good things that you can do. Number one, go to the truth of God's word. 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That means that God has forgiven you and he's imputed Jesus' righteousness on you if you're in him. The second thing is if the enemy keeps bringing up your, your past, just remember his future. You don't have to give him audience and voice in your life. Resist him and he will flee from you, the book of James says. Now Mark makes sure that we know that Jesus showcased this power by only speaking. And do you know why? Remember, he's trying to tell us there's no one like Jesus. He's told us repeatedly that Jesus is God. And what did God do at the beginning? Genesis 1, then God said, let there be light, and what happened? And there was light. And the rest of the account of the creation follows that pattern. Then God said, and then there was. It's not then God toiled, and God built, and God worked, and God sweat, and he strained, and he labored, and he buckled, and he groaned. No. Then God said, and there was. 
because there's an enormity of power here that is unmatched. And when you're in its presence, it's impossible to miss. And so when Jesus walks into the synagogue and starts speaking with that power, the unclean spirit recognizes it, and with the word, he silences it and sends it away. The rest of the crowd sees it as well. The testimony of his power. And then lastly, there's a testimony of his authority. There's another thing that everyone in that synagogue had already heard and seen. And that was someone who took the scriptures and teach. They'd heard that. They'd seen it more times than they could count. Every Sabbath, like clockwork, for their entire lives, they'd watched this happen. But there was something different on this day, wasn't there? Verse 21 Right away he entered the synagogue and on the, on the Sabbath and began to teach. Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Now as a point of foreshadowing, you need to know there's going to be a lot that the religious leaders in Jesus' day get wrong in the book of Mark. They're going to get a lot wrong. But we need to give them credit where credit is due. They actually got this part right. Because it's like any church service that you attend today. When you sit and listen to me or any other preacher, if it's done right, they will teach with borrowed authority. And what that means is this. The only authority behind this comes from the Word of God and by the work of the Spirit of God. If I, if I came up here this morning and I relied, I taught only my opinion and relied only on my own power, I would waste everyone's time, including my own. What's the point of that? I'm I'm Nobody. And this is good for us. Here's why. It frees us up to stand for truth. If there's something in the scriptures that you don't like this morning, some of the scriptures that are going to offend you or make you mad, I'm free to proclaim it just as God revealed it. And here's why. I didn't write it. I don't, I don't, I don't, my glory, my, my, my word, my truth is not on the line here. It's God's word. It's God's truth. It's his glory. It's on the line. And so I can be free to proclaim it just as he has revealed it. And this is how the scribes taught. They taught the scriptures as one who did not write them. This is why thus says the Lord needs to be a central part of any good teaching. And this applies to everyone who's ever taught the scriptures, everyone except for one. Because there's nobody else like him. Because Jesus strolled right into that synagogue and he owned it. This is my word. This is my kingdom. I am the truth, he said. He didn't hide from it. He stated it outright. He did so throughout his entire ministry. There's no borrowed authority here. He is the authority. He knows the way to God. Why? Because he says he is the way to God. He speaks truth. Why? Because he is the truth. He points us to eternal life. Why? Because he's the giver of it. And he rightly recognizes darkness because he's the light. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one with his identity. There's no one with his power. There's no one with his authority. And Mark is making that clear for us here. But but you know what the strange thing is? It's not enough just to know that. In fact, it's, it's not even enough to believe that. And that's actually made evident from this story. There's, there's no one who recognizes Jesus' identity quicker than the demon. There's no one who believes it more than the demon. And here's how James puts it in his book. He says, you believe that God is one good. That's a sarcastic good, by the way. You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. James is saying, so you have this belief in God that puts you right on par with the kingdom of darkness. Believing in God is not enough. And so what is it that we're supposed to do with this realization? If there's no one else like Jesus, what am I to do with that? Well, I think it's, we can start here. We, first, we should be in awe of him. What the Bible will always point us to and lead us to eventually is a surrendering to Jesus and his authority. 
What is needed is a humbling of ourselves before him. It's laying down any of my works and any of my efforts and any of myself and relying fully and totally on him. But before we get to that point, we need to be in awe of him. We must recognize who he is and we must recognize who we are in comparison. We see these reactions play out in this passage. Look, look at verse 22. It says, They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and like the scribes. Verse 27, they were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, what is this, a new teaching with authority? But they're, they're in awe of him. They're, they're shocked by him. They're surprised by him. But there was one being that wasn't in awe, wasn't there? It was the one who knew the fullness of Jesus' identity, the one who was not surprised by it and was not learning it for the first time on this day. And it was the demon. Because it turns out that knowing the truth about God is not enough. It's not enough to surrender to him. It's just enough to reject him. And this is my theory. I can't prove this this morning, but I believe this is probably how it played out. Remember the origins of the kingdom of darkness. There was a group of heavenly beings who saw the worship and the glory and reign of God, and their thought was not in all of it. Their thought was, I should have that. That, that should be mine. And so they rebelled and were cast out. Their problem wasn't in knowing who God was. They were there. They saw it in full. They knew fully who he was. The problem is that they were too full of themselves. They thought they deserved what God was getting. They understood the identity of God, but they misread how great a gap between them was. And you know what's still true today? There are people who sit in churches all over the world who know what God's word says. They know who Jesus is. They know his identity. They know just enough to reject his rule and never surrender because they have way too high a view of themselves. You see, to be in awe of Jesus requires the right thinking about me. God isn't that impressive if I don't think I need him. He's less impressive if I think I am him. But to see that I'm a sinner by nature, that that's who I am, to see that, that no one in my life has ever been worse to me than I've been to me, to see that the ones that I most consistently hurt in my life are the ones that I say I love the most, to see that the vast majority of my issues are self-inflicted, that I am prideful and selfish and rebellious, to have the right view of me, and then to see Jesus divine by nature, to see Jesus whom no one has ever been better to me than him, to see Jesus who sacrificed his life for those he loves, to see Jesus whose power and authority know no end, to see Jesus who remains humble and gracious and good in spite of all of it, and the only right response is awe and wonder and amazement. To say, Jesus, how could you of all people, how could you love a sinner like me? How could you of all people suffer terribly and give up your life and pay the price to offer somebody like me eternal life? How's that even possible? And this wonder and amazement, this is necessary for those who come to faith in him and for those who followed Jesus for decades. We have to fight against familiarity. We must remain in awe of our Savior. Someone like him really did die for someone like me. And then when we're in awe of him, we can spread the news about him. I mean, think about it. Just like the people who persistently told me about the restaurant or the show or the game or whatever, we talk about what we're most amazed about. We share what it is we're most excited about. We see this play out in verse 27. 
They're all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And verse 28 is the natural byproduct of that. At once, Mark reads, the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Talk about what we're most excited about. You see, there's a really good way to know if you've lost both the awe and wonder of Jesus. A couple of litmus tests you can give yourself. If it becomes harder and harder for you to be moved genuinely in worship and becomes harder and harder for you to share your faith, those are really good signs that you've lost your awe of Jesus. Someone like him really did die for someone like us to save us and redeem us and forgive us and offer us life forever. And there are people all over our world under spiritual oppression. And it might not look exactly like it did in this synagogue in Mark 1, but they are under the control of the kingdom of darkness. Their God is their flesh. They serve all their desires and their whims, and their path is leading them to eternal destruction, and we know the one who can free them from all of it. We know the one who, with a word, can deliver the captives, the one who can break every single chain, the one who brings forgiveness where there is sin, life where there is death, and hope where there is grief. There's simply nothing more important you will ever do in this life than to spread the news about Jesus Christ. Nothing. So be in awe of him and let that all drive you to share the good news about him. And lastly, line up under his authority. See, it's not enough to know about him. It's not enough to recognize his identity. It's not even enough to be in awe of him. That must result in a submission to and a surrender to his authority. When he says that he's the only way to the Father, we must believe in him. We must believe in Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. When he gives us the mission for our life, we must live that mission out. When he gives us his word, we must line up our lives under it because there's no one else like him. There's no human teacher. There's no institution. There's no other authority and no sway of culture that will ever come close to the unsurpassed greatness of Jesus Christ. Despite being the most humble being to ever walk this earth, what I greatly appreciate about about him is that he did not hide that from us. He was open about that that no one will ever come close to his unsurpassed greatness. At the end of his longest recorded sermon in the Bible, this was his parting shot. Matthew chapter 7, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts in them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and it collapsed with a great crash. I don't know how he could have laid it out any clearer for us. You've been given one life by your creator, and in this life, you're going to have successes, and you're going to have failures, and storms absolutely will come your way. The rains will fall, and the rivers will rise, and your foundation will be tested. The thing that you are trusting in, the thing that you're banking on, the thing that you are serving and pursuing the most will be shown as to whether or not it can pass the tests. And Jesus says you have two options, just two. He breaks it down for us as simply as possible. Option one is you can build your life and put your faith and line up under Jesus Christ and his authority and his teachings and his word, and you will be wise, he says. No matter what comes your way, including death, no matter how dark the trials, no matter how big the struggles, no matter what comes your way, your foundation will hold firm because you have built on the rock 
Because Jesus has an answer for everything because the Bible says that any who put their faith in him will never be put to shame. Or option two is this. This is what Jesus says. Trust in, follow, or believe in literally anything else out there other than him. Because they're all the same. And when trials come your way, and when your foundation is tested, and especially when your earthly life ends, everything that you banked on will come crumbling down with a great crash and fail you miserably. Because there is nothing and there is no one like Jesus Christ. So be in awe of him. Spread the news about him in every way, in every way. Line up under his authority. It's the only wise way to live. Let's pray. Here in a moment, we're going to give you a response time. And the question I want you to take to the Lord is simply this. How is it, God, that I'm not lining up under the authority of Jesus? Colossians 1 tells us to walk worthy of the Lord, living fully pleasing to him. So the first thing I want you to consider this morning is this. Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Have you ever trusted in him to forgive you of your sins and to save you from hell and deliver you eternal life in heaven? If you have now, then we're going to call you to call out to him today and do just that. But those of you who have in, in this time of response, we're going to ask that you ask the Lord, what is it, what area of your life that you're keeping from his rule and authority? Is it a cherished sin? Is it a relationship? Is it something you call a struggle but you're not really struggling with? You're just giving into? Is it an attitude? Is it your finances? Is it your time, your calendar, your schedule? Where is it that you're not giving him control? We're going to ask you to ask him to reveal that to you and then repent of it because there's no one else like him. He deserves our full surrender. Father, around this room, would you show us our needs? God, would you show us the areas of our life, whether it's a full surrender and submission to you for salvation or whether it's, whether it's sort of areas of life that we've cornered off and, and not given to you? Or would you help us to see where we're not living and lining up under the authority of Jesus Christ? And Lord, first, first birth in us just in awe and wonder of him and who he is. Second, Lord, give us the wisdom to repent and to live wise lives by listening to him and doing what he says. And then thirdly, would you raise up a congregation of people who are so amazed by you, so amazed by your grace, so amazed by your gospel, that we would spread the news about him all over our region and wherever you put us. We pray that you do this for the glory of his name. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This is your time uh, just to, to spend with the Lord, ask those questions we laid before.